A new scientific report shows that the tar sands emissions are far under what is being publicly reported. Climate justice Saskatoon takes their government to court over fossil fuels. Omar Al-Gabra in the ire of J.K. Rowling for fundraising for women's shelter. Navdeep Baines goes from government to Rogers like a good politician should. And Hassan Diab is sentenced in absentia to life in prison in France for a bombing for which he maintains his innocence. Good morning. It's Tuesday, April 25th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. The tar sands might be producing significantly more greenhouse gas emissions than is currently being reported. Researchers from the Department of Environment and Climate Change Canada found that emissions were probably at least 65% higher than what the industry has reported. What explains this difference? The researchers used a new technique to measure emissions. They flew over the tar sands region 30 times in 2018 to establish the ratio of nitrogen oxides to carbon dioxide in the emissions from the industry. The ratio was similar to other flights in 2013. Then they made an estimate by using satellite data and industry reported amounts to make their new estimate. The paper was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. That journal has an impact score of 10.53, if you have any idea what that means. And don't worry if you don't. Their estimate places the amount of unreported carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere to be about 31 million tons. While an industry spokesman said that the research was incorrect, an analyst from Environment Canada said that the method that the researchers used should still not produce such a disparity from what the industry reports. Bob Weber from the Canadian Press explains, quote, without reconciling these differences, it's hard to set targets for emission reductions or know if they're being met, a key issue for government and industry climate plans. For example, the 31 million tons of unreported carbon is about three times the total amount stored since 2015 through carbon capture and storage. The fix industry hopes will eventually make it carbon neutral. Next, activists working with Climate Justice Saskatoon are taking their province to court due to its role in accelerating climate change. Seven residents aged 15 to 80 have filed an application claiming that expanding gas-fired electricity generation is a violation of their Section 7 charter rights, the life to life, liberty and security of person. They want Sask Power to decarbonize and target 2035 as the date by when they will have net zero emissions. The current promise is to be net zero by 2050. Sask Power is planning to build a new gas-fired plant in Moose Jaw and is considering another in Lanigan. Lynn Oliphant, one of the plaintiffs, told CBC Saskatchewan's Will McLernan, quote, I think the government has got to come to grips with the fact that climate change is real. That will be a tall order, considering that the folks who are in power in Saskatchewan right now, frankly, don't care about the environment or people's health. They claim that the new gas-fired plants are, quote, the most effective way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions without causing undue harm to our people and the economy, unquote. McLernan does not follow up that statement with fact-checking. Here is what the U.S. Energy Information Administration says. Natural gas is a relatively clean fossil fuel, though it remains a fossil fuel. It's clean when you compare it to coal, for example, or petroleum, but it is absolutely not clean in the extraction and shipment of natural gas. You have to get it through fracking, which you might recall is causing earthquakes in northern Alberta. And natural gas is notoriously bad for leaks, both pipeline leaks and flares. 
and it poisons waters. So is it the best option while also making sure that the economy rolls on? I'm I'm not sure that that's even a something that can be defended. Do we think that it's neat that our energy needs trigger earthquakes? Scott Moe seems to. Anyway, this lawsuit is not likely to work. While McLernan doesn't fact check the government's claims, the article does look into similar lawsuits that haven't been successful. But these lawsuits can be a useful tactic when employed alongside mobilizing and organizing people. So good luck to the plaintiffs in this case. Next, to a very bizarre story in Yahoo News about Minister of Transportation Omar El-Gabra being ratioed on Twitter. On April 20th, El-Gabra posted a video of male members of a parliamentary committee walking around in high heel shoes. The tweet said this, quote, Violence against women is still prevalent in our society. Hope in Heels is an event that spreads awareness on violence against women while encouraging men and boys to be part of the solution. We wore their signature pink heels in support of this important cause, unquote. And then he tagged Halton Women's Place, a women's shelter that annually coordinates this event called Hope in Heels. It used to be called Walk a Mile in Her Shoes. You might remember it called that. The idea is that men walk around in high heels to raise money for local women's shelters in the way that sometimes you might do a bowl-a-thon or a swim-a-thon or whatever. I have always hated this event, but not hated it enough to care about publicly hating it. It's gimmicky, but it raises money. Former Unifor president Jerry Dias was very involved in the event annually, and in September 2021, he raised more than a million dollars for the Halton Women's Place in his own Hope for High Heels event. It's always struck me as an event where men could just relive their childhood playtime and maybe raise some money. And at the end of the day, who cares? They're raising money. Well, do you know who cares? Global woman policeman J.K. Rowling. She retweeted Algabra's tweet and said, quote, keep us posted on how many femicides this has prevented, unquote. It's probably what led to Algabra being ratioed as he had almost 10,000 replies to his original tweet. That, by the way, is a freaking lot. It's hard not to see Rowling's ter-fascist crusade driving her to even comment on this event, seeing men walking around in high heel shoes. And kudos to Algabra. He doesn't apologize. Instead, he says that it's too bad how many insecure men were triggered by seeing men wearing high heel shoes. A pretty good response that might just distract from his new air passenger bill of rights, which is already being panned. Next, from the Department of Patronage, Navdeep Baines has been appointed to be the Chief Corporate Affairs Officer for Rogers. The position is, quote-unquote, newly created, and he will be leading public policy for Rogers, reports Denise Peglinawan from the Financial Post. Baines, you may recall, was a longtime Liberal MP and, uh, oh yeah, the Minister of Industry, the minister closest <laughs> to Rogers. But it isn't like Baines went right from politics to Rogers. He made a pit stop at CIBC, where he was the vice chair of global investment banking. Baines is prohibited from lobbying for five years under the Federal Lobbying Act. But in his new role at Rogers, he is responsible for lobbying and government relations. In case you're wondering if our legislation has any teeth, the answer is no, it does not. Baines is replacing a guy named Ted Woodhead. Vas Bednar is an analyst who said, quote, it does seem like a sort of obvious or blatant hire that says this person was a liberal insider who was in charge of policies in our industry, who knows the political landscape and what's on the minds of regulators. And now we're going to leverage his knowledge and insight for our benefit. It all seems like a classic instance of regulatory capture. Baines joins Rogers just as the final stages of their takeover of Shaw is finalized. 
joining the board at the same time are Zoran Stanich, Brad Shaw, and Trevor English, all who had been in leadership positions at Shaw. If you're ever wondering why we pay some of the highest cell phone bills in the world, well, this, this, it's this, this is why. And finally, a French court has sentenced Hassan Diab to life in prison in absentia for an attack on a Paris synagogue in 1980 that killed four people. Diab has always maintained his innocence and was released from a French prison five years ago. He maintains that he was in Beirut at the time of the bombing. The main evidence that the French legal system has used to convict Diab is a handwriting sample that the bomber had written on a hotel registration card, reports the Ottawa citizen's Lynn Saxbird. In 2008, Canada extradited Diab, even though Canadian courts found the evidence to be weak. While he was there, he was mostly in solitary confinement. He missed the birth of his son and the death of his father, and he waited for trial for three years. Even though French investigative judges threw out the case against him, a different procedure found him guilty. Diab teaches at Carleton University and says that he thinks he spent about a million dollars on lawyers to defend himself over the years. He hopes that Canada will not extradite him for a second time. Saxbird quotes him saying, Six months after my return in 2018, the Prime Minister said that what happened to me shouldn't have happened, and we will make sure it never happens again. We are hoping that he will honour his words, especially knowing how the trial was conducted. I hope they will do the right thing so that they can save us a little bit of time to live the last few years in peace. Those are your headlines for Tuesday, April 25th. It's Sandy and Nora Day, so a new episode drops in a couple of hours. I think you're going to like this one. It's an interesting conversation about whether or not we're too critical. Are we too critical? I don't know. Anyway, I hope you have a great Tuesday, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.